Hello, this is Hannah over at University Archives, and this is episode 11 of the U of M Radio and Your Historic Dial podcast, Eight Days in May. 45 years ago this month, anti-war protests in and around the University of Minnesota boiled over as angry demonstrators and police clashed in the streets. The audio we are going to hear on this program appeared on The Hour, a weekly program written and produced by students. This episode of The Hour aired directly after a week of protests on the U of M campus in the wake of President Nixon's announcement on May 8, 1972, that the United States would mine North Vietnamese ports, further escalating the conflict in Vietnam. The wave of disturbances was set off Monday night when President Richard Nixon addressed the nation to announce changes in American military policies concerning Southeast Asia. The killing in this tragic war must stop. By simply getting out, we would only worsen the bloodshed. By relying solely on negotiations, we would give an intransigent enemy the time he needs to press his aggression on the battlefield. There's only one way to stop the killing. That is to keep the weapons of war out of the hands of the international outlaws of North Vietnam. I have therefore concluded that Hanoi must be denied the weapons and supplies it needs to continue the aggression. In full coordination with the Republic of Vietnam, I have ordered the following measures which are being implemented as I am speaking to you. All entrances to North Vietnamese ports will be mined to prevent access to these ports and North Vietnamese naval operations from these ports. United States forces have been directed to take appropriate measures within the internal and claimed territorial waters of North Vietnam to interdict the delivery of any supplies. Rail and all other communications will be cut off to the maximum extent possible. Air and naval strikes against military targets in North Vietnam will continue. At first, those angered by President Nixon's statement looked to Governor Wendell Anderson to enact measures in protest of the war's escalation. Anderson did not do so, but was sympathetic, saying that the president's decision was some of the saddest news we've had in our lifetimes. The first major protest began at a new housing development in Cedar Riverside on May 9th. Two groups of demonstrators, one protesting the gentrification of the area as evidenced by the new high-rise, and the other an anti-war group, converged into a crowd of thousands. Some property damage occurred and several arrests, but this was only a prelude to the violence that would ensue the next day. On Wednesday, the crowds moved to Dinkytown, many heading to the armory in protest of the ROTC's presence on campus. And I hope you people will speak around because there's a lot of imperialism around us, and there's a lot of people here willing to fight it. One, two, three, four, Vietnam's a thousand war. Five, six, seven, eight, nothing to In what is the most unnerving segment of the broadcast, the host of the program and reporter on the ground, Larry Davenport, who graduated from the School of Journalism and Mass Communications in 1973, witnesses the tense standoff between the police and the demonstrators, giving a minute-by-minute report of the escalation of violence between the two sides. I'm standing on the roof of the Newman Center across the street from the armory, a line of about I would guess 30 to 40 riot police is moving in now. The demonstrators have built a steel fence barricade blocked up by drums and by uh, 
by mailboxes and things. Here come the police. There's a crowd of perhaps 500 people getting very militant. Debris damage. I see a couple of demonstrators picking up clubs from out of the debris. The police have formed into sort of a flying wedge, into a V formation. They're uh, just a little bit down from 17th Avenue. I'm moving partially with the crowd here I'm under the one of the bridges across the across Washington Avenue. Apparently they're driving the police line back. Apparently, I can't tell for sure. Pedestrian bridges overhead are jammed, crowded with people. The street is filled. Thousands of people out in the street right now. They're clearing people off the bridge. Police are clearing people off the pedestrian bridge over my head. There they come. Obscenities are shouting. Eggs, I saw some more eggs being flown. Police are moving back again. Students who've been gassed are going into Ford Hall. I saw a couple of them cleaning, trying to clean their watering eyes out in a drinking fountain. There are a number of police uh, on the bridge overhead. They're looking at the students below them. And it looks like, yeah, the gas masks are coming out. Police are putting on gas masks. Police are putting, putting on the gas masks above the bridge. People are getting out their wet claws. The claws are going over the mouth. Several people have already been, been maced. They're backing up from the bridge. There are two, four, six, eight officers up there with gas guns, with the gas guns and the mace. I'm proceeding on down away from it. The smell of mace is in the air. The eyes are starting, starting, to, starting to water. Okay. They're coming. They're moving on down the street. I'm going down onto Washington. I'm in front of the old chemistry building, the addition. Moving around. I'm moving in front of the crowd. Most of the crowd is going up onto the mall. I'm underneath the pedestrian bridge nearest the Washington uh, Avenue bridge across the river. I don't know if they're going to come to my position or if they're turning. Most of the students are going up going up onto the, onto the banking there. A gas bomb right near me. There it goes. It's within feet from me. We're running away from it. One student's trying to pick it up. He's throwing it back at the police. He's throwing it back. A gas bomb's going off. Firing all over the area. Police are hurling them back at the demonstrators. I'm behind the line of demonstrators. Smoke up in the air. They're coming off the bridges onto the far side by the Union. Running down the street now to avoid the cloud of gas coming. Police are charging up the bank. I'm temporarily, temporarily backed off. Hopefully safe. We're going up along River Road, running with, running with several, several of the demonstrators up here. They're coming up around the back. Coming up onto River Road. Demonstrators are coming out. I'm crossing the street in front of the science classroom building. Heading for the Washington Avenue Bridge, trying to get out of the gas fields. Are clouds of blue CS gas rising up uh, near the university. A strange sight on this warm Wednesday afternoon. Sirens, sirens now coming up. I'm watching, Let's see what it is. More squads. Heading for the West Bank area. Approximately, people coughing, out of breath. My throat is getting sore. I don't know how much longer I can talk. I got a little whiff of the gas. One student just passed me, 
bleeding from the forehead. The gas is all over the area, the smell of it. The gas cylinders are light blue. And as they come, they smoke, and when they hit, they explode, sending out tendrils of, <coughs> of gas. <coughs> One of the gas cartridges went off very, <coughs> very near me. I'm going to go see if I can help some of the demonstrators on the ground across River Road <laughs> and hardly see <coughs> or talk. Water streaming <coughs> down from the eyes from a heavy whiff of the gas. By midnight, the barricade still stood and protesters and police had come to a standstill. In considerably more peaceful surroundings, Davenport next interviews a woman who feels it is her duty to stay on the barricade, knowing it will likely not make a larger political impact. By midnight, demonstrators had barricaded Washington Avenue at Church Street with fences, construction equipment, boards, telephone poles, barrels, and other miscellaneous gear. Governor Wendell Anderson requested that the National Guard be mobilized, and units of the military police arrived on campus to secure the recruiting center and the university armory from the protesters. About 1 a.m., I talked with a girl sitting alone on the curb just behind the barricade. Are you going to be manning the barricades when and if the police come? Uh, yeah. How long have you been here? Uh, about an hour. I work at the hospital. I was here uh, between 3 and 4, and then I had to go to work, and I went to work, and I watched from the windows, and I really got uptight about the whole thing, and that's why I came back. Are you working with the medical personnel here, then? I'm an aide at the hospital. I go to school, too. Do you think that this is going to do any good, or are they just going to drive through it, or what's going to uh, happen? It's not going to, you mean politically? Politically, it will do no good, no. But a lot of people have a, a lot of emotional anger that they have to let out. That's why they're here. That's why I'm here. And it's not going to do any good as far as the work is concerned, but... If it's not going to do any good politically, do you think it's worth it for a lot of people to get busted and injured? Yes, they have to do it. They have to do it. That, that's... There's a personal stand, then. Yeah, there's a personal stand. It, it's not, they, they, I think most of them know it's not going to do any good. But they have to do something. They have this emotional buildup, and what can, what, what can they do? You know, they, they have to do something. Okay, thank you very much. The protests continued into Thursday, with more barricades going up, which disrupted traffic to some degree. Smaller demonstrations occurred throughout the week, though none reached the fever pitch levels of Wednesday afternoon. In some instances, there was a sense of peaceful camaraderie with groups of people singing familiar songs such as This Land is Your Land. By Friday, the barricades were all dismantled. This episode of The Hour was recorded on the Saturday following the events you've been hearing. In it, Davenport speculates that the protests, now sometimes referred to as the Eight Days in May or the Dinkytown Riots, were in part caused by the shift from dissatisfaction with the federal government for its involvement in Vietnam to outrage at the local government for deploying the police and the National Guard, some of whom were excessive in their tactics towards demonstrators. That's all for this episode. I hope you'll tune in next time when I hand the reins over to another project archivist here in Archives and Special Collections. The U of M Radio on your Historic Dial podcast is produced every other week for your enjoyment. Subscribe or download on iTunes or Google Play so you don't miss another moment of historic Minnesota radio.
If you enjoy our clips and want to hear or learn more, go to www.lib.umn.edu slash uarchives and search KUOM and the Collections Guides. Digitization of University Archives recordings was financed in part with funds provided by the State of Minnesota from the Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund through the Minnesota Historical Society. Let's go.